Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Conversations. I'm Eliana. And I'm Patrick. Hi. Well, we've just finished day number three of Con. It is technically day four. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm right. You know, as you said, it's really technically the fourth day already because we're recording here past midnight. But I think I've reached this state of mind now that I don't even register the uh, sleep deprivation, <laughs> the bad high that I should sense. And overall, I'm doing okay. I think the films so far haven't been <laughs> extraordinarily uh, interesting. But then again, we're still in the early phase of the festival. And I just, I'm really confident there is still so many good, you know, good things to see. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing all right. Um, it's true. The films, the films have been a bit testing. They've been quite long in duration. And it seems that in this performative duration, we're supposed to find something. And sometimes it's more effective. Sometimes it's a little less effective. But we'll get into that as we talk more. So what did you see today? Today or yesterday, I saw, for once, I saw a film that we'll talk about at a later point of the festival. There was the Sean Price Williams film, The Sweet East. I also saw Wang Bing's uh, documentary, Youth and Spring. Those were the only films I saw today, actually. Uh, we will talk about another one, that, but that we saw actually the day before, and that is Steve McQueen's Occupied City. In our first episode, we have already uh, looked forward to that in anticipation. And is that the film we want to start off with, or is there something else that we should maybe get into first? I'd be happy to start with Occupied City. So were you also happy seeing this film? I feel like I met a lot of people that were... Uh, really mixed on this, so I wonder what you felt. Mm -hmm. I have to say that this film was very testing on multiple levels. The first would be the duration. It was one of the first films that I've seen in, in recent history where we've had an actual intermission that was built into the festival as well as potentially the film itself. So the film falls under the category of documentary. It is based off of the filmmaker's wife's book that she compiled. Do you have the name? Yeah, uh, it's called Atlas of an Occupied City. And um, the visual and the narration are not matched. We see visuals of Amsterdam in the present day. This was filmed perhaps or, or exactly around the time of the outbreak of COVID. There's an, an announcement in one vignette where the president announces the national five-week lockdown. The, but the narration follow, takes us into various homes, around 130 homes, and recounts stories of German occupation in Amsterdam. Right. This is based on uh, Bianca Stichter's research that is to be found in her f in her book, and yeah, as you said, it really uh, presents as this contrast between present day images and the historical events that occurred during the Nazi occupation uh, during the Second World War, 
I think we may have already mentioned in our first episode that Cypher Queen sort of in interviews beforehand said journalists that uh, he had shot more even than 36 hours of footage. And seeing that now, though, uh, it is perhaps less of, you know, less of a less of a news if you see that film because the images he uh, presents us with uh, are rather mundane. It, it's really, it is attempting to portray Amsterdam in all its diversity uh, and as you said, throughout these years of the pandemic, I suppose. And yeah, then sometimes we find those sort of uh, links that link the present and the past. And sometimes it maybe is also a bit weird how those things go together. Overall, was that a concept that worked for you? What did you feel? Hmm. I left the film thinking five words. Cruelty, destruction, hypocrisy, resilience and amnesia. I felt that this film, in some form, was able to project this idea that we don't own anything. We don't own history. We don't own places. We don't own spaces. I don't know if it needed the duration that it took in order to make this message. And I'm not sure exactly where we go from after that. But somewhere within that space, with that past and present, it also felt as if it was trying to push a current message to say, we must be doing something now. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that it ends in a certain way that unifies the entirety of the past and the present with the um, bar mitzvah of a biracial child in Am a synagogue in Amsterdam. And I think maybe there lies the potential in the film itself to perhaps link these or interweave the current images and the past history of the city more strongly and maybe more convincingly even as a sort of thesis I suppose I really liked that toward the end of the film I think they talk about this one central square in Amsterdam mm -hmm. that in the past was very much utilized by the Nazis I think to you know, to just gather all the Jews, I suppose, and uh, detain them from there. But in the present now, we see it as a meeting point for uh, protesters, be it for more climate justice mm -hmm. or be it... What else did we have? I think there were other concerns as well. That there were some anti-lockdown protests and there were also some sex worker protests, I believe. So, so of course, those things, it's a it's a slippery slope. We don't want to equate, uh, you know, anti-lockdown itself. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, these days, it's a bit easier to talk about these things because now we don't feel the, you know, it isn't something that is tangible every day that COVID is, uh, you know, part of our lives these days. And it doesn't seem to be as much of a, of, of a threat anymore. But in any case, yeah, I, I think there was also something that led to a lot of confusion uh, mm. regarding this film because there also apparently, you know, at least it may seem to people that there seems to be sort of analogy uh, drawn out here between you know, lockdowns and detention mm -hmm. of Jews. Of course, mm. I mean, there's even the um, 
the star, right? As a symbol, the like star of David, a, a, right? The yellow star. Yeah, the yellows. Yeah, that, right. The yellow star, of course, of of the Nazis to demarcate who's mm-hmm. who's Jewish of Jewish descent and not, and as if this were sort of you know a similar stigma to what people faced during the pandemic. And of course, this is quite uh, a slippery slope. And I suppose for Steve McQueen, he he uh, was asked a lot of questions about that. And I think I'm, you know, I'm not convinced that the film was very uh, clear on that. Mm-hmm. I think in another sense, before we wrap up talking about this film, one other thing that really stood out to me that seemed slightly insensitive was this idea of surveillance and Steve McQueen's own implementation of, I believe, drone um, drone footage at some point, which I think really undercut the whole entire theme of how we look at a targeted group of people and how we can progress or move forward into seeing what sort of what sort of what's next what are we supposed to do as people are is he i don't know at some point it felt are you saying we should step up our generation needs to step up i don't i'm not sure did you feel that message come through yeah and then i wonder just you know what this stepping up would even mean you know like stepping up for what or mm-hmm. you know like uh being engaged in order to achieve what, you know, it all seemed a bit vague and it all seemed to be uh, vague for the sake of being ambiguous. But sometimes this is really not effective for me because then it becomes sort of arbitrary to me and this how I felt about that. But yeah, maybe uh, let's shift to another film. So I I would not uh, wholeheartedly uh, recommend that film. But it clearly can serve as a conversation starter. I just wonder if there is a more, you know, a more condensed and maybe a more, you know, a clearer vision of what Steve McQueen was aiming for here. But in any case, uh, I have heard that you saw the Vim Vendors film. Um, yes. Yes, Anselm. Um, exactly, which only had one screening here at the festival. So quite a lot of people who wanted to go did not have a chance to see that. Uh, how did that go? I was not aware of that, actually, until you made me aware of that. And then I felt rather lucky. It was the only film that I've seen in 3D. It felt really like an intimate studio visit. Anselm Kiefer is known internationally as one of the most prolific living and influential artists of our time. His work often focuses on themes of, of well, uh, that are very close to home for him, of post-war Germany. Of He was born in 1945, just when the war ended, and this film featured three different Anselms, shall we say. One was Anselm Kiefer himself, one was his son playing a younger version of himself, and one was Wim Wenders' son playing an even younger version of of Anselm Kiefer, the child. Um, The biography... Wim Wenders played the child? Wim Wenders' son played... Oh, understand, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And that was also very curious to see these two that this acclaimed film director and acclaimed artist interweave their own stories and reinforce the artistic myth of Anselm Kiefer. 
I was really taken aback by the 3D dimensionality of this. I was in the balcony area of the large Lumiere Theater, which can hold how many people approximately? I don't know, but it's more than thousands. So. Okay. And we're, we were greeted first with a series of statues of um, women who are dressed in white, headless, and they're littered around an open forest. And then it swiftly goes into us seeing Anselm Kiefer in his gorgeous, immense studio, which is just outside of Paris, as he bikes through his studio and he greets these angels up on the cabinets or on the shelves of his workspace. When, when one sees the scale of and the level of organization that goes into his work, he surrounds himself with runes and he surrounds himself with, I don't know, with artifacts of, of time that is no longer. Now I wonder, so your taking a backness, is that because the 3D didn't work for you as well or was it because it was just so impressive or what do you mean by that? I think I was just very impressed by it since... He has also, his presence as an artist has left a mark on me. Um, I first saw his work in London at White Cube Bermondsey um, in 2020, 2019, where he had an exhibition called uh, String Theory. His work is influenced by Paul Ceylon or Ceylon? Ceylon. Who he uses as a guide to, there's this poem that you might be familiar with. I was thinking of the tortoise fuga, but... Yeah, yeah, this one. Okay. The, this one. And an obsession with mythical women of a German past and history that were also exploited by Nazis and Nazi ideology. And how often in his work he brings back that which provokes because he's afraid that people will forget the history of World War Two. It's quite good to go into this after Occupied City, in a sense, thematically. And there was something um, slightly melancholic about the film as well. The only one thing that I would critique about the film is I'm really not sure if, if it were not a 3D rendition, if the 2D version of this film would stand up to time um, or if it would just be, would fade back into another artist biopic that one can see on Arte. Right. So this 3D even worked for you in the balcony? Like there was not an issue? For that you? was not an issue. Okay, um, that's good. I was very stunned when I when I saw the film. And it, and it was also intercut with different media sources. So interviews of him talking about one of his photography performances where he does the Nazi salute in various locations around Europe um, was seen in one of an, an older version of a TV that was filmed and it was also projected in a forest. So we had different levels of media bringing this man to life and also right. different types of archives. Archives were three-dimensional. There were trees that were coming out and extending their way into my my vision of field, my field of vision. <laughs> <laughs> it's late. Yeah, uh, that sounds quite intriguing, and I wonder if that film will ever, you know, see see the light of you know of other theaters. If this will ever be shown, and if so, if really in three D, because of mm. course that it will always require a bit more work and a bit more negotiating, I suppose, with uh, 
theater owners and distributors and so on and so on. But uh, yeah, I will I will look forward to that. Uh, of course, we will, I guess, at some point talk about the other Wim Wenders film, which uh, plays in the competition to another documentary, yet another one. Yes. That would be Wang Bing uh, and his new film Youth and Spring. And, you know, the spring comes in brackets or in parentheses. And this is a film project that was shot between 2014 and 2019. Is the only documentary in competition. And I was told uh, is basically the first documentary documentary in competition here for uh, 20 years. Wow. So it's quite a while. Yeah. Cannes is very traditional when it comes to uh, its competition that is, you know, reserved for mm -hmm. uh, narrative cinema. And I don't think you have seen much Wang Bing before, right? This That's correct. This is my first Wang Bing film. And it was quite a tour de force in duration again. So, so it takes place in this mm -hmm. province, right? And it takes... you are a much better, you know, orator when it comes to, uh, you know, pronouncing this province. So it takes place in Zhili. I'm not actually entirely sure of the tones for that, uh, um, in the Zhejiang province in China, which is one of the coastal provinces. It's near the coast. And every year, apparently, around... Okay. And every year, around 300,000 migrants from around the province, that province of Zhejiang come to work. And there are 18,000 privately owned manufacturing companies that deal with textiles and sewing. Well, the, they're factories, essentially. Right. And so this is basically where this documentary is located and follows uh, just workers. They're basically workers' lives. They're sort of private homes that are most of the times really just adjacent to to you know, to the stores, to uh, the factories, to the uh, workshops. Mm -hmm. And I suppose we get, we get a great sense of community in that film. I think this might be the predominant uh, factor for me here, at least, that this is about community. And of course, for people who've been to China and to Asia, a lot of these things may seem, you know, self-evident, but to someone like me who, who has never been on the Asian continent, that is something that feels quite strange and foreign to me. The way uh, the way life is structured there, the way people interact with another, uh, with another, and to me, uh, they're always really fascinating. And you get a great sense of who these people are, not not necessarily as individuals, but rather in their interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. in, in their communal function as workers who not only work, but live often in these same factories that are owned by their bosses, who they seem to have a somewhat jovial yet also strained relationship with. I think it's important that we also note that this film is called Qingchuan or Youth, and spring because many of these migrant workers or the ones that we saw were between the ages of 19 and 22 or so. Yeah. 
or the end of 20, but yeah, pretty much in that range. And in this time period, we observe a lot of um, their interactions, which include trying to pursue one another or also falling. They're, they're um, vulnerable to their addictions, their gaming as a way to escape. Maybe vulnerable to addiction is not the right way, but just they're, yeah, they're, they spend their free time gaming. Right. Yeah, and I think what you say also, uh, you know, gets at what I was saying earlier that uh, to me, a lot of people, uh, <laughs> a lot of aspects here of daily life there are very strange. I mean, the way, you know, love life, for instance, is presented here is very much, you know, it's sort of aggressive and sort mm-hmm. of violent. And uh, I think this is something that at least in like, middle European, northern European, Mm -hmm. that's really not so much a thing. But here it's very physical. So Mm -hmm. people are pinching each other and Mm -hmm. uh, slapping each other and Mm -hmm. snapping at each other. And it's really, uh, there seems to be a a sense of affection that is conveyed through that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in in certain parts of the world, I think uh, those things, you know, those incidents would be classified as harassment or something. And often it appears as though a person feels harassed in one moment, but then it just shifts in, in the next second. And then you realize, no, this is actually part of a greater game that I just, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a part of. I don't quite understand the rules of this game. It's very hard to say, too, because I think I I would agree with you in general. I would not know. It's a bit it's a bit nuanced whether it is harassment in in certain countries. We would absolutely nowadays call that sort of behavior, the type of behavior we see featured in the film harassment. But also what comes through to me is the clear familial impositions that still exist when when a girl is being pursued by a boy she says directly to him my father doesn't want me marrying poorer than our own family right and and this seems in itself an explanation perhaps she is attracted to this guy but there is something that seems rather dead end about what has been in, in the message that she's received about who, what type of person she should marry, what type of person she should even be. Right. Yeah, this seems to be sort of inscribed into her biography then, you know, that she cannot really, she cannot really mm, leave this sort of trajectory that is, uh, that is anticipated for her to uh, follow. Yeah, and of course, when I talked about community earlier and you... Yeah, you said communalism. There's also, of course, this aspect of how to defend one's interests in the workspace, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. we often see that these workers there don't actually earn enough to, you know, make ends meet. We often see them sort of gathering together and then just among the workers discuss how to best approach the boss, mm-hmm. you know, and how to, how to, uh, get a wage raise Mm -hmm. because of course those are all wages of course no one there earns a salary and it's just the tiniest sums of money they Mm -hmm. mean the world there really and uh but then again one really gets the sense that these uh business owners Mm -hmm. they don't seem to have 
at least what seems to be conveyed through the documentary, they don't seem to have a lot of leverage there either because mm -hmm. it seems that they are also not really, you know, they're not leading a luxurious life or something. Mm -hmm. They they stand on tables and work full-time mm -hmm. themselves every day, probably much more than we understand as mm -hmm. full-time. So there was a really interesting uh, dynamic here and just this anxiety and fear of how to even approach the boss is really yeah. well, well conveyed here, I mm -hmm. thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also found that they had a relationship with their bosses, even though we have this anxiety that you speak of, but there's also a relationship that I have never directly had with bosses that I've personally experienced, where it was the, the, the workers were at some point quite direct and they said no this is exactly what we're making we want to have exactly. this much more which means multiplied by the amount of product that we'll be producing we should get this much more in total and that was also something that i found which made them ultimately more vulnerable because they weren't able to often get the point across to the boss or the boss would then use a, an excuse to say why often he couldn't increase Right. Their wages. Yeah. And uh, I wonder, other other things that stood out for you with regard to this one? And did you find it accomplished? I believe that this film was um, shot over a period of five years, from 2014 to 2019. I'm not sure if I find the duration merits the point that it's trying to get across or... I think the film is just a bit too long and the and my lingering question rather is as the footage ends in 2019 we are now three years past four years past this time and what's happened to the same this industry following COVID we don't have any idea about that as viewers and so for me the urgency of this documentary is somewhat lost or it becomes more of a historic documentary because I guess I'm curious to know what are these private factories doing now so post COVID? If, yeah, if I understood correctly, there will be a second part. So, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I don't want to spread wrong news here, but I think that's what I heard. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting to see. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess here, I think here yeah, I didn't mind it so much as with uh, Steve McQueen's film, because with Steve McQueen's film, I often felt that. Uh, the, the images often undermine the text and mm -hmm. the uh, the text often undermined uh, the images that I could, you know, in cinema, it's the greatest thing if they all, uh, you know, if they all are combined to something mm -hmm. that is greater than the sum of its part and or if the sum of its part is greater than the individual pieces together. Whereas here, uh, I see through the, as it sometimes may seem, endless repetitions, you know, in a sense, they are structural repetitions, but they are not real repetitions because we change locations here. We see different uh, manufacturers and we see different people, but they seem to face the same issues. So to me, there is a sort of interference, you know, there's a sort of, there are these patterns that occur and recur then and through that uh, one can sort of mm, maybe diagnose is too much of a word but you know we can 
sort of infer certain structural issues that I think if it were edited too much, if it were cut too heavily, then we would not get the sense. But uh, of course, that's a, there's always a tricky argument, right? Like if you talk about long films and mm -hmm. edit that, and I often felt, don't find them very fruitful. And you, you will always find people who defend the longer films and you'll find people who defend mm -hmm. the shorter films. But I don't think this is so interesting a question. It's rather like, how can you justify it through the form? Mm -hmm. And yeah, mm -hmm. to me, this kind of worked, but I understand your point, I suppose. Uh, maybe we should, what is the next film we should talk about? I think we can talk about one more, right? Shall we talk about Monster? I suppose, because we talked so much about documentaries today. It <laughs> might be sort of, uh, and also we talked about rather bleak documentaries for the most part. And I wonder, Hirokazu Koreeda's Monster, uh, how did you feel about that? I have to say, I saw this film in La Licorne, which is one of the theaters that is just for the people who have the Cannes Cinephile accreditation. Other people may join. However, the subtitles are always in French. So with this extra element, it's a bit difficult sometimes for me. I don't But it's lovely to see just the local Cannes residents coming out and the older generations of people who come to see cinema at Cannes come, they get teary-eyed. This was a film that made a lot of people teary-eyed oh, in my, in my, in my sal, in my, in my theater. Personally, I was engaged while watching it because it felt There was an element of mystery in the first two acts because this film can roughly be divided into three acts. The first one follows more or less the POV of the, the mother, the second one POV of the teacher, and the third one, the boy. Yeah, and the general premise here is that the boy at some point starts behaving strangely, so in a way that feels uncanny to the mother, so she doesn't recognize certain behaviors of her son so he cuts his hair differently he his sneakers disappear and there seems to be some sort of bullying going on in the school but no one really knows what's going on and the mother suspects that the teacher might be involved in you know abuse and in violent behavior toward the children at least to her child and yeah I suppose these first two parts of the film that you mentioned, they try to try to engage us in this mystery and to find out what's going on here. And I must say I was very excited for that just because I thought, okay, after, you know, after La Verité and after Broker, uh, now Koreeda goes back to Japan and There was a time when I liked Koreeda's films. Uh, it just recently, it seems to have evaporated a bit. You know, my my feelings have evaporated for his films. But uh, I think deep down, he's still an interesting director or he, you know, he has a certain signature that I think is recognizable whether you like it or not. So, uh And then, of course, we already, you know, we already mentioned that I think in the first podcast episode, this 
is you know when you first hear it of course you uh, think of uh, Kurosawa but uh, I don't know it didn't really feel that way to me it uh, I never like from the start I wasn't very engaged with the film I I just was a bit you know I was a bit disappointed in the lack of form in this film I think it was heavily focused on the narrative and with respect to narrative I should say that uh, this is uh, a collaboration uh, so this is not Koreda writing the film mm. this is by one of the two Sakamoto's with whom he has collaborated here uh, of course we have uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto's last score mm -hmm. that uh, we can listen to here and I think Yuji. Yes, Yuji Sakamoto wrote the screenplay. Right, and uh, this is not typical for Koreda. Yuji uh, Sakamoto is primarily known for uh, drama series in Japan. He also made this one film that apparently is uh, impressive, but I have not seen that yet. In any way, so I guess that is a new departure from uh, for Koreda to try something new to maybe try to incorporate another person's voice into his work. I believe that Koreeda's first film was also an adapted screenplay. And this is the first time that he's doing it since his first film. I see. I'm not sure what his first film right. is called, though. But I guess there's a difference between adapting a screenplay... That's true, and, and using someone's exactly. screenplay. Exactly, but I see what you're saying. Okay, so that's interesting, yeah. Now, I wonder if that will be practicable for him in the future if that is something that he keeps engaging with in the future and the difficult thing with regard to this film is that the third part of this film is so uh is so overwhelming in how it sort of mm, overshadows what happened before Mm. that um, it makes it difficult for us to talk about it plot-wise. So that's why I said I was disappointed in form primarily because uh, for me, that's often the most important part or aspect of the film, the form. And I don't think that he necessarily found, uh, you know, new means to especially visual sto storytelling here. Do you have like an overall impression of that film because for you of course it's still very recent you just came from the screening basically it is and that's both good and bad because i am still processing it but in terms of form or themes um it's very clear that he was trying to work with the idea of um memory what is remembered who remembers what what people believe and there are also many also like with Wang Bing's youth or spring just this imposition that I talked about earlier of familial values and um, obligations also came through thematically in this film as well as the yeah, I guess that we can talk about right mm -hmm. like uh, what is this obligation like we see that in school uh for instance, right? Like what kind of obligations does Kuleta show us there when it comes to the teachers? Mm -hmm. So we see a conflict that occurs. I don't know. I think that's totally fine All to right. talk about that. The mother named Saori, her son comes home and 
accuses a teacher of having abused him in class, um, having called him a name and having physically harmed him, caused some form of physical harm to him. And so Saori goes to the teacher's lounge. She sees the director of the school, a madame, who is groveling on her knees, picking gum up from the floor. And she explains her, her, her disgust with the way that the teacher has handled things. And this is met with a formal apology um, <laughs> without any explanation. Without any explanation. And we see the mother gets very upset. She gets so upset to the point that she actually almost causes a physical altercation with the teachers, or right. she's just on the verge of doing so. Um, uh, this entire procedure is just repeated again and again. So mm-hmm. the mother wants to hear, of course, rather something that is akin to an explanation, but it goes on again and again. We formally apologize, we apologize, mm-hmm. and of course we see them bowing in, mm-hmm. in front of her, but nothing will be said, really. Mm-hmm. Nothing will be imparted on, you know, as to what happened uh, in school. And this is really, the film makes a point that, uh, you know, this is to protect the school, this is to protect the, uh, uh, you know, that there's also, of course, uh, it's a matter of reputation in competition with other schools as mm-hmm. well. There are so many aspects that just try to protect the institution over the individual mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And for a while, I thought that that's where the film was going. I thought that um, the film was going to make a big point in terms of talking about the future of children, the education they receive in school versus the education they receive from their parents. This did not necessarily manifest in that set way, but arguably one can see that it still has a heavy hand in the rest of the film. Right. But I do think that it is, you know, eventually really undermined by the third part. And this is also part of my biggest criticism of the film. It's just that it seems to, toward the end, it just as if this third part really undermines what has, you know, happened so far that suddenly the story of the teacher and the story of the mother have lost so heavily in weight that I wonder if they were ever anything but, you know, a launch pad to tell the final episode of the film. I understand what you mean. And I think going back to this point in another, in a, at another angle is just something that I've expressed to you before that sometimes frustrates me when a film presents something as mysterious or as, as fantastic and then slowly reveals that what we begin, whatever we thought was the mystery or whatever we thought was the... Uh, who or what the yeah, monster who or is. or what the monster is, is actually, once, that become, once that's unveiled, right. some form of a concrete answer occurs. And that sometimes, in my viewing, diminishes how I view the ultimate outcome of the film. Right. Yeah, to me, it's also just... There seem to be certain tropes that are just, you know, regurgitated again and again in uh, Kureda's film, perhaps, but perhaps also in other just 
I suppose, drama films in general. I mean, here we have this idea that, oh, when something really dramatical happens, we see the pouring rain, you know, and people who run in the pouring rain and are looking for someone. And this seems to be such, you know, this is such an, it's, you know, it's so unimaginative. It really follows a certain, just a certain trajectory that we've seen again and again in uh, similar films. And I was just really disappointed in the lack of imagination here or, you know, to come up with something new. Uh, and also, I don't know, how did you feel about the score? Because it is, of course, a bit disappointing to talk about this and then talk about it negatively in the sense that, okay, this well-acclaimed and well-liked composer <laughs> just died recently, <laughs> his last score, and this is the way he leaves the stage, even though, of course, I think this is always something that artists to some extent have in their mind that the last, you know, the last work might indeed be the last work they ever produced. Mm. So, but I often felt that this was also doing a disservice to the film because it sounded just very, you know, well-tempered and it, it felt so, it's so, it felt really like nothing in a sense i don't know how you like was it in any way disruptive to you or did you did you want it just uh, i'm going to parry that with another question did you want it to feel more as if there was foreboding or what sort of mood were you feeling based off of the perhaps you know Kureda has this reputation of being such a humanist director and mm -hmm being so concerned with family and with alternatives found for other family constellations, uh, what can be imagined in the future of communality. And then this is just in a way, of course, you can say, okay, this is then a Correira score and of course it works, but it just felt so, it felt a bit slight and it felt... Mm -hmm something that I might listen to when I have to study or something to <laughs> yes. to listen to in the background. But mm -hmm. I didn't think that it helped the movie to sort of lure me in to be engaged with it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I would tend to agree. There was only one other episode where we had music, shall we say, without giving anything away a protagonist and who we have come to see as the least liked character in the film unite in some way, which is very Koreada like, mm -hmm. um, and they make noises using instruments. I thought this was somewhat sweet. Right. Even though that I don't think that has to do with um, Sakamoto's <laughs> composition, but I'm not, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, I don't know how uh, how far into detail the uh, collaboration went there. I found this film a bit painting by the numbers in the sense that I had the idea that often Kureda thought that, okay, this scene might be a clever idea and, oh, this recurs back to something we have established at the beginning, but it felt so obvious to me and I really lacked... It really lacked ambivalence. There is this one scene where the school director and the boy, you know, the uh, protagonist boy, they come together and they blow the trumpet and I think saxophone or something, uh, music instruments. And they have this dialogue that in itself, you know, 
I found a bit cheesy, but okay, I can live with that. But then the director makes an ambiguous statement. Uh, it says that, okay, if you don't, if, if you cannot talk to someone, if you cannot share your secrets with others or your feelings, then you can still, you know, blow it off. You can still, you know, and in the sense you can blow into the trumpet or this is in itself. And it's a fine statement. If you think that, oh, is that really what one should do? You know, like, mm -hmm. but then one could at least think, okay, we are sort of canalizing it to sort of art or something. Mm. But then what does she do? She goes back to her statement and says, no, that's actually not true. Everyone deserves happiness in yes. life. And this is, well, he couldn't even stand this one ambiguity in the <laughs> film, you know, and it felt like this film was full with that, you know, like, don't let me see or create meaning within the work itself rather i'm given this and now i have mm -hmm. to take it as it is there are other parts but i can't cannot really go yes. into that because it connects <laughs> to the greater storyline but do you see what i mean here i see what you mean i was actually referring to that scene when i just talked about it but oh. i do agree with your interpretation of this this last statement that she makes i see okay that you meant by reunification or yes, something right yes. okay Good. i was being maybe too vague because there's no nest. <laughs> yeah i wasn't sure who is the unsympathetic character and who is reunited with whom but okay that's good to know yeah so and i guess this brings us to a close right because it's very late it already is. we won't impart on you how late it is but believe us Dear listener, it is late. And Eliana, what can the... You mean what can? Listeners... <laughs> oh, what can? No, very good, very good. What can the listeners, the many listeners, what can they expect in our next episode that will hopefully come soon? We hoped this to air earlier or to be uploaded earlier, but uh, yeah, we couldn't quite fit it in to the schedule. Mm -hmm. So... What are the films we will talk next about? We're going to next talk about The Sweet East by Sean Price Williams, How to Have Sex, Molly Manning Walker. This is her debut film. That's her debut. She apparently had a, she had a short here in Cannes when the festival didn't take place in 2020. And so it just got this Cannes zeal, you know, like as oh. to like... Mm -hmm. Thomas Winterberg film, uh, Another Round, uh -huh. that then won the Oscar. And it was technically a Cannes film, but no one really, or like rarely, any, like barely anyone connected it with Cannes because, you know, if it was never shown at Cannes and just had this Cannes seal, but I suppose. So this will be uh, the first film of hers that will shown in the theater because, yeah, the shorts were never shown <laughs> theatrically all right and films we might have the chance to talk about briefly a prince by pierre creton and dreaming in between by ryutaro ninomia that sounded very convincing to me two documentaries in the rear view by maciek hamela on the edge by nicola petduzzi as right. well as I, think I have screeners for these films so even if i don't make it to one of the screenings I might be able to see it in our Airbnb <laughs> we'll do a, 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 yes alright <laughs> okay um, and of course the is it ultimate yeah the much awaited ultimate cut of Caligula right the juicy the juicy one 
the juicy one that may not be as juicy as one expects. But the controversy around it now, apparently Tinto Brass is suing Penthouse Productions for their new ultimate cut of his film. Well, I hope... His previous film, because this film, The Ultimate Cut, is being released technically without a director. I see. Okay. And is... I still hope you saying that doesn't scare off all the listeners who were waiting for the juicy bits. Well, there will be things that leak. Okay. Let's hope so. And uh, that brings us to a close, I suppose... Uh, thank you very much for listening and Eliana thank you very much thank you Patrick bye bye bye